When we speak of the Protestant Reformation, we most often speak of the recovery of the biblical gospel, with the Reformers' emphasis on justification by faith. The gospel of grace had been obscured by the Roman Catholic Church, who had turned it into a works-based salvation, ultimately, with their emphasis on penance and indulgences and purgatory and so on. They turned it into works-based salvation. And as the Reformers returned to Scripture and examined the Scriptures, they began to see that, in fact, salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So the core of Martin Luther's claims, the, the, the guy who really kicked off the Protestant Reformation, the core of his claims was the fact that Scripture teaches that a person is made right before God on the basis of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith alone, in Christ, who died to save sinners. And this salvation was a gracious gift of God, which no person, no man, no woman could contribute anything to. This was the basis of his, of his claims. And as we saw a few weeks ago, if you were here, when I mentioned um, Lady Jane Grey, who um, was killed ultimately uh, and was a Protestant, she was put to death as a teenager, this gospel that was recovered at the Reformation was one that answered the central question of life. That is, how to be made right with a holy God. How sinful man can be made right with God. And it gave people like Jane Grey and many others courage in the face of death, whether that was uh, martyrdom or any other death. It resolved life's major question for people and gave confidence. But while the Reformation brought about a recovery of that, this core question about life, that is how to be made right with God, the return to Scripture also led to recovery of other biblical teaching that had become obscured also by church tradition and by the teaching of the Catholic Church. So the goodness and the beauty of marriage was one such truth that was recovered. Okay? It had become a, a carnal thing. Um, for, for those that didn't have the spiritual strength to be celibate. So if you'll recall, the clergy didn't marry. They still don't. They, they, would, they wouldn't marry. Um, but if you, you know, couldn't handle it, then you could, you know, not be a clergy and you could get married. And it was sort of this carnal thing still. That's how it was viewed. And as the, one of the things that the reformers recovered was a, a biblical view of marriage and a high view of marriage and companionship within marriage. It's a good thing. Another area in which there was a significant recovery and a significant shift in perspective was the area of work, the area of work or vocation. It had become commonplace to view monks and clergy as having the highest calling, while all other forms of work were really um, for second-rate Christians. Physical labor, for example, was seen by many to taint devotion to God. And so this was the general thinking in medieval Christianity. There was a sharp divide between what was known as spiritual and the profane. Or we might be, know it better as the divide between the sacred and the secular. 
So the, the, um, the you know, clergy and monks and nuns, they, they did uh, what was spiritual, and everybody else just had a normal sort of secular, profane job of some sort. However, not seeing this in Scripture, not seeing this divide in Scripture, the Reformers rejected this, and they held the position that all human work, however lowly, was capable of glorifying God. Now, I just want to say at the outset, obviously there are some jobs out there that by their very nature cannot glorify God. Um, prostitution is one. You, there cannot, there's no way to glorify God in that. So I think we'll just, we, I hope we understand that. But, but lowly jobs that we might think of as lowly, think of some, uh, maybe we, we might think of janitorial work as that type of lowly work. That type of work is not profane, it's not merely secular, some second-rate Christian can do that job. No, even that job can be done to the glory of God. And that's what the Reformers were arguing for and, and recovering, which is what Scripture teaches. And so since we are justified by grace through faith, that is, since we do not work for our salvation, we are freed then, as believers, justified by grace through faith, we are freed then to work for the good of others, in the world, by loving our neighbors, serving them well, working for their good at our jobs, and we are free to glorify God in our work. Every believer is placed where they are by God. He is sovereign after all. Every believer has been given the skills and abilities they have by God. He is sovereign in that. And we are enabled then by God to fulfill a particular calling. A particular vocation. That's what the word vocation means. It means calling. And so we, we, we all have callings. It could be to carpentry. It could be to the ministry. Um, but it's not, it's not just for those who go into full-time ministry. It's not just for a pastor or a missionary or a monk or a nun. It's not, that's not what... Um, just what calling is. Everyone has a calling from God to work. Luther elevated housework as being, quote, more valued than all the works of monks and nuns. Recognizing that on the surface of it, you know, there's, there's nothing really glamorous about it, and yet he says it's, it's more significant, more valued than all the works of monks and nuns when it's done by a believer, someone justified by faith. Monks and nuns, on the other hand, he argued, were fleeing their duty. They're fleeing their duty to work for the Lord, to, to uh, work in the world. And they're, they're running away from it, and they're hiding out and shirking their responsibilities in the world. So as we come to 2 Thessalonians 3.6 this morning, as we continue in 2 Thessalonians, which we're almost done, just this and one more message, and we will be done, Lord willing, one more message, and we will be done uh, in Thessalonians. And so as we come to, to verse 6 of chapter 3, we're going to see uh, that this is one of the passages that led the Reformers to their view of work. It's one of the passages that sets us straight in our understanding of, of work. It offers us important biblical teaching. The reality is, we so easily despise work. 
We just tend to get through it until it's over, until the weekend. We just get through it until we are on vacation. We just get through it until five o'clock comes and we can finally get out of there. And we can have such a low view of our labor. And it can be quite miserable. We can view it as a hindrance to so many other things in this life. It's a hindrance, perhaps you might even think, to your own godliness. If I had more time and I didn't have to work like this, I could read more. I could study more. We think this way. Perhaps you've even succumbed to the idea, because it's not just a Catholic way of thinking. Perhaps you've succumbed to the idea that because you're not in, quote, full-time Christian ministry, you are somehow, therefore, a second-rate believer, that your work doesn't really matter as much as other people's work. And that's not true, and I hope that you'll see that as we go today. We spend so much of our lives working, so much of it at work to survive. And so it's imperative that we think as biblically as we can about this, and we have a biblical mindset as we set out to do our work. And the scriptures show us that as we continue this, um, this uh, series on a faithful church, that if a faithful church is to uphold work, hard work, as important fruit of the gospel. That is, the Bible teaches that working hard at our jobs is one of the marks of a Christian. And as a church, we are to, um, to understand this, we need to grasp this, and we need to uphold it as a church and hold one another to this. And so here's where we're going as we look into this passage. Here's the outline. We are to uphold work as important fruit of the gospel by first, number one, disciplining those who refuse to work. Number two, following the examples of hard work that we find in Scripture. Number three, submitting to the instruction about work in Scripture. So number one, we're to uphold work as important fruit of the gospel by disciplining those who refuse to work. Join with me in reading um, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Paul writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So Paul begins here to take up an issue that persisted in the Thessalonian church. What was this problem? Well, the ESV here, as I just read it from, says that there are some who walk uh, or were walking in idleness walking in idleness. The word translated idleness there actually means disorder or undisciplined. So if you have another translation, the NASB I think says disorderly or uses the word disorder. Um, that's, that's, that's what it's saying. Um, so, so what Paul is, is communicating here is that there are people who are walking in a way that was not in order with the traditions or teachings that he had passed down to them. The specific way that people were out of step with what they'd been taught was that some were not working. This is made explicit if you look down at verses 10 and 11. Some of them were not working, and this is the way in which they were being disorderly. They were being undisciplined. They weren't working. So this is why the USV uses the word idleness. So their disorderliness, their disobedience was that they were not working. That is, they were idle. 
And this was not right. This was not okay. This was not good. This was sin. Notice that the church was called to keep away from any brother walking in such a way. Keep away, uh, right there in verse 6, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. This might seem odd to some of us. After all, we are told that it's inappropriate to make judgments about people. It's inappropriate to make a judgment about anything. Aren't Christians, after all, to be accepting people? We are to accept anyone, regardless of what they say or do, regardless of how it is that they live. Aren't we? Well, the Bible's teaching is that those who claim to be a brother, claim to be a Christian, that is, yet who practice ongoing, unrepentant sin, are to be disciplined and avoided. They're to be set outside of fellowship. Paul says this again in 1 Corinthians 5.11. He says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, claiming to be a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So if someone wants to claim to be a Christian yet persist in their sinful lifestyle and sinful practices, we're told to keep away from them, not even to eat with such a one. This sin of not working is something that Paul has addressed before. We saw this back in 1 Thessalonians 4, 12 and 13. He told them there to work with their own hands as they'd been instructed. So they'd been instructed about this before. This is not new. And he gives the purpose so that, in verse 13, they might walk properly before outsiders. Notice that working hard is a matter of Christian witness. It's a, one of the ways that we walk properly before outsiders, is that we work hard. We work to earn a living. But now, some have persisted in disobedience to this command, and the situation was worse, and Paul's words now are even a little more harsh. And Paul says, keep away from anyone who continues to disobey in this area. So Paul's describing here what is commonly called church discipline. And we're going to talk about that more um, next, next week as we get to verses 13 to 15. Uh, we'll talk a little more, but just a couple of, of comments are necessary now. Um, disciplining someone, setting them outside of, of the fellowship of the church seems harsh to us, I think, I'm guessing, to many of us. It can seem harsh to us, in part because, again, the spirit of our age um, doesn't allow for a judgment, doesn't allow to disagree with anybody, to part ways with somebody over uh, their choices, their sinful lifestyle. It's not in vogue, that's not cool, that's not okay in the world and even amongst a lot of churches. Judgments are not to be made. Disagreements aren't even cool or allowed in some cases. And yet very clearly here, if someone refuses to submit to the clear teachings of Scripture, yet claims to be a brother, they are to be disfellowshipped. They're to be disciplined. We're to keep away from that person, Paul says. It's very clear here. 
So why, why does he say this? Why is this the teaching of Scripture? Why should we practice this? Well, first of all, we should practice this because we're told to. Right? We're to do what the Word of God says. We're to obey Him, lest we are guilty of grieving the Spirit. So even if we don't totally understand it or know why, even if we don't, it, it rubs us a little the wrong way, we should do it because, the, because God tells us to do it. And in on one sense, that's, that's just reason enough. Notice also here, uh, it's a command. He, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a suggestion. Paul's invoking the name and the authority of Jesus Christ to make his point here. We command you in Christ's name. Paul's not out on a whim here, just well, this is maybe a good idea. In the name of Jesus, do this. Keep away from these people. We're commanded to do it, and so we are to do it. Secondly, though, as to why we should do this, it protects the witness and the purity of the church. Jesus himself warned that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. For a church that is called to be holy, to live lives that are set apart unto God, to be warring against our sin and fighting for holiness, to be tolerating at the same time just blatant, unrepentant sin to the clear teachings of Scripture will have a leaven-like effect on the church. We can't pretend otherwise. It will. And, and history proves this to be the case, where churches begin to compromise in what maybe seem insignificant ways and yet are clearly in opposition to Scripture, it then never has a good effect. It leads to only bad things. We are to be vigilant to hold on to the truth of God's Word. And just to, to note what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that we are to be ungracious with one another when we sin. As long as people are repentant of their sin, we are to graciously and freely forgive people. Peter asked, how often should, I, you know, should someone sin against me and I still forgive them? Seven times? That sounds like a lot. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. It's, in, in other words, as many times as somebody sins against you but repents of it, you are to forgive them. And so we're going to sin, we do sin, we, we, we are all going to continue to sin as long as we are on this earth, before Christ's coming, before we die. There will be sin in our midst. The, the issue is whether we're repentant of it or not, or whether we are just blatantly carrying on in unrepentant sin. That's very, very different. You think of David, who sinned very grievously, and what's the difference between him and somebody like Saul? David was repentant over it. Read Psalm 51. Yes, he sinned grievously, but it also tore him up, and he begged for God's mercy. And so we are not to be ungracious or unkind to one another when we sin the, if we are repentant. But if we're not repentant, we need to rebuke one another. And if someone continues in blatant, unrepentant sin, then ultimately the end part of that process of church discipline, which we'll talk more about next week, is to put that person outside of our fellowship. As for the church in Thessalonica and, and what was happening, why was it these people were not working? What's going on here? Uh, we, the reality is we don't know for sure. We don't know exactly why they weren't working or what was happening. 
Some people say that it's because of their eschatology, their end times belief. So because these letters to the Thessalonians, they, they, uh, first and second Thessalonians talks quite a bit about the end times, and there was some confusion in the church, which we've already seen, thinking that the, the ending, that, that the day of the Lord was already upon them. Uh, some people think that, uh, that therefore, uh, because of that, um, they are uh, confused and giving up work. They're no longer working. They've quit working because the day of the Lord's upon them. The Lord's returning right away. It's happening. It's coming. Who's going to work if the end is upon us? So some people will argue that's why, what's happening here. But the, the reality is, though, the letters never actually explicitly make that connection. There is quite a bit of talk of the end times. There are some people that aren't working properly and aren't obeying Paul's commands. But the, 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 the view of end times is never stated explicitly as the reason why they weren't working. So it's not for sure that that's why. Uh, another possible reason that I think is plausible, I've mentioned before, is found in the idea of patronage. And I'm not, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, um, but um, there is a system that was part of the social fabric in Thessalonica and in the Roman Empire known as patronage, where uh, uh, some wealthier people, prominent people, would be patrons, and they would accumulate for themselves clients, people who would argue on their behalf, um, and then as a, as a and, and sort of, um, you know, patrons would, would have a, a n- number of clients and, and that would enhance their prestige, the more people they had under them. And what the patrons would do is they would then give money and give food and stuff for these clients to then survive um, and, and, and be able to eat. And this was a system that was in place in Thessalonica. And it's also known that some patrons um, didn't supply enough food or money for clients to survive. And so it's quite possible that some of these Christians in Thessalonica were clients. They, they um, uh, argued on behalf of, in public, these patrons. They were um, given honor by being perhaps clients of well-known uh, patrons and they, a certain prestige, and yet they weren't getting enough food to survive, and so they were having to come to the church to receive um, further money or uh, food handouts in order to live. This is another possible explanation of what's happening. Um, one commentator explains it this way. Clients depended on their rich patrons receiving benefits from them, such as food, money, and representation, while the patrons enjoyed the public honor that accrued to their account for having so many clients. So this very well could be the background to why it was that some people were not working with their hands and yet and, and were not having, you know, able to provide enough food. Regardless... What is clear here is that some were not working, though they'd been told to, and they were depending on the support of other wealthier Christians in order to survive. And those who persisted in this disobedience, as we've seen, were to be avoided. They were to be put outside the church. So I'm concluding from this then that work and working hard is an important fruit of the gospel. So just as a perpetual, 
unrepentant adulterer is to be put outside of the church, so too is an idle person who refuses to work though they're capable of doing so. That person is not to receive handouts from the church. Now again, are there any exceptions to this rule? I think yes, there are. Um, There are certainly going to be physical uh, people with physical disabilities that render them unable to provide for themselves and make a living. That's not who Paul has in mind here. So yeah, there are going to be some exceptions. Paul is talking about people who are physically able but refusing to work and, and are relying on handouts from other Christians. Those people were not to expect any. And also, just to add, certainly as life goes on, uh, work changes for us. Uh, we have in our world something called retirement, where we can stop working if we've acquired enough wealth and we are able to then um, live out the rest of our days on savings and, uh, and, um, and we don't have to have a job, so to speak, uh, in order to survive. We can still live. And this is something that wasn't there in, when Paul's writing this. So, so we're not always paid for our work, such as in retirement, but there's still work to be done. The Bible doesn't know anything about work for a few years and then take all that you've made and spend it on vain things and spend it all on yourself and just do whatever it is you want to do. That's not a biblical view of retirement. It's fine to be able to stop working. That's a great thing if you don't have to work in order to survive. However, work doesn't stop. There's always, we're always called to something. And so there might be work even after you retire uh, in your family. There might be more you can do as a grandparent with your grandchildren. There's going to be work, certainly, in your church. Uh, there's lots to be done. There's people who need the gospel. There's, there's, uh, there's, there's never an end to, um, to working for the Lord, even if it doesn't take the form of having to earn our own wage because we've reached retirement. You're still called to serve the Lord, even in retirement. We need to uphold the Bible's teaching on this subject. Work is important fruit of the gospel, so much so that if one refuses to engage in it, it warrants discipline. So we need to encourage one another to persevere in our callings, to persevere in our jobs. We need to uphold each other in this. Serving the Lord well in our jobs is an appropriate response to our salvation. Yes, work is not always fun. Yes, it it can be very difficult and tiring and laborious. But we need to make our mindset one of service to God. And this will transform our work from drudgery, with which the world commonly views work, to a more God-honoring and contented labor. Number two, a faithful church upholds work as important fruit of the gospel by following the examples of hard work in Scripture. Let's read verses 7 to 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. 
But with toil and labor we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul begins here to give reasons as to why it's appropriate for them to keep away from a brother or a sister. In this case, it's men, it's brothers who are refusing to work. And the first reason is that they knew already. They knew that they were to imitate Paul's example. He says this in the beginning of 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And then at the end of verse 9, that they worked hard to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. They already knew this. They were blatantly disobeying this. He goes on after he tells them in verse beginning of verse 7 how they, were, they knew they were to imitate him. He then explains what his example looked like. He says they were not disorderly. That is, they were not idle. Rather, they, they were obeying this command to work. They were practicing what they were preaching, Paul and his companions. Companions. They didn't eat bread without paying for it, verse 8. Instead, they were working night and day with great toil and labor so as to not be a burden on any of them. In verse 9, he, he says that they actually, he, he makes reference to the fact that they actually had the right to receive money from them. And what he's referring to there is the fact that it's right and good for preachers of the gospel to make their living by the gospel. Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 9, I believe it is. Um, but he says they didn't make use of that right so that he would give them a good example of hard work, a good example to follow. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uh, shows us that he regularly didn't take money from churches um, until after he left. So he would go into a place, he would preach the gospel, he would not take money from them for himself, he would work hard, but when he went on, there'd be opportunity. So he'd move on from that town, there'd be opportunity for that church to support him in his ongoing mission effort. But when he'd first go in, he didn't do that. And elsewhere, in 1 Corinthians 9, we're told he did that because it was his joy and his boast to present the gospel free of charge, to lay no extra burden on them, to remove any question of his motives when he goes in there and evangelizes them. But here, he says it was to give them, the reason he did this, to, to give them an example of hard work to follow. And so I think that he saw a problem in this church from the beginning. He saw people early on freeloading for whatever reason. And so his usual practice of supporting himself while he preached took on the added significance of not only is he removing any question about his motives and preaching free of charge, but it takes on the added significance of giving them an example to follow. As mentioned when we were back in 1 Thessalonians 4, um, Paul worked likely as a tent maker or perhaps a leather worker. This was known for long hours. It was known to be very difficult work, and it was known to bring in very meager pay. So it's fascinating and I think incredibly instructive and interesting that Paul, the great apostle, was not above this even as an apostle of Jesus Christ. What an amazing and exalted um, office he held. 
He was given a, a, a role in the church, a special, unique role as an apostle, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus himself. If anyone was worthy of honor in the church and worthy of just let us give you whatever you need to help you, it was Paul. And yet, he went to work hard with his hands something that was not viewed of as particularly glorious, kind of not significant in that culture. Long hours, hard work, meager pay, and he went, went to it, and he went to it as unto the Lord. He was not afraid to work hard in other ways, other than his apostolic ministry, to earn money in order to buy bread. So one of the ordinary ways that God provides your food is by providing you with a job that enables you to make money and to buy bread. That's God's provision for you. That's one of the ways he takes care of you. We, I think, tend to think that God provided food for the Israelites in the wilderness through manna because it was clearly miraculous. But other than that, we kind of all go find our own food. But that's not true. One of the ways God provides for you is he's giving you a job or he's giving you your husband a job in order to provide finances to go to the store and buy food. He has provided us with rain for farmers to grow food. There's a whole system in place here by God's common grace to humanity where we can go to the store and buy all kinds of great food and survive. And that's God's provision for us. And we should thank him for that. And so what Paul's talking about here is is he calls us to work hard and to provide for ourselves. This is not a godless sort of individualism where we are just um, self-sustaining. I'm my own man and I make my own way in this world and nobody helps me and I work hard. That's not what Paul's talking about. Yes, he calls us to work hard. He calls us to provide as best we can. um, But it's not some godless individualism. We're to work hard with the gifts that God has given us in order to survive, to make a living. And this is not in opposition to serving the Lord. It is one of the ways that we serve the Lord. And so we should not think that serving the Lord is for special people who go off into ministry for a certain amount of time. We serve the Lord in whatever calling we're called to. If it's motherhood, that is your calling, to serve the Lord in that. Whatever your job is that you work at, that is your calling. As a student, whatever it is, you're called to serve the Lord faithfully in that task. So when you're working hard and you're feeling frustrated by it, Remember Paul, the greatest missionary on record, laboring day and night as a tent maker, no doubt exhausted by it, to show us that it's noble and good to work and to earn a living. He was not above it, even though he had this wonderful mission directly from Christ himself. And he's left us a wonderful example to follow, and we must follow. When you think of or you feel the futility of your work, when you're tempted to think that your work, whatever it is, is a hindrance to faithfulness to God, 
Remember Paul, hard at work, and commanding us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to do likewise. Your work is not an obstacle to serving God. It's not an obstacle to your holiness. It's one of the ways you are to serve Him. It's a fruit of our faith to work hard in whatever our calling as unto the Lord. So take courage in this. Take courage in this. Work hard as unto the Lord. May we be known as the hardest working people in our jobs, at your workplace. May we be known to our neighbors as hard-working moms, hard-working dads, as those who are grateful to the Lord for His provisions for us. There's a, something called the Protestant work ethic, which, which follows on the fact that when the Protestants recovered a biblical view of work, it led to actually working hard because, and in working well because you're now working as unto the Lord and not people-pleasing, not just for man or not just to eke out an existence or get through the day, but as unto the Lord. And so it changed the way people worked. People started to work harder with integrity because this is unto the Lord and he's worthy of the best. A a, a misunderstanding of it, I read in preparing for this, uh, there are some out there who think that, um, that, that Protestants worked hard and work hard because they're trying to earn their salvation. So if it's up to that, therefore that's why Protestants work hard. And that, I mean, couldn't be uh, 